Hello, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the November edition of Islamophonic. We've travelled the length and breadth of the country, well, the Midlands anyway, to look at the government's preventing violent extremism agenda. £86 million has been set aside to prevent violent extremism. But who's getting the money? Why are they getting it? And what are they doing with it? In this programme, we meet people who are in the loop as well as those who aren't. We hit the streets to hear what the public has to say. As far as I'm concerned, government shouldn't be having anything to do with religion. And we ask the people in power whether the strategy is working or if it's just an expensive way of buying people's loyalty. Is it just people who are already in the know who are getting this money? Is it about preventing extremism or general community work? If it's general community work, all communities need to be supported. Get ready for Islamophonic, where we like to grind the axe into the axis of evil. In 2007, Community Secretary Ruth Kelly launched an £86 million fund to tackle violent extremism with £45 million of this going to local authorities. The idea was to give these 78 councils power to spread this cash among projects designed to steer people away from radicalisation by militant groups. Around £6 million has already been spent and the rest is going to be allocated during the next three years. Around 200 projects have already received money and here are some examples. Myth-busting booklets. Islamic Faith Awareness Training Islam Women's Forum Mosques Support Project Woking People of Faith Forum Asian Business Forum Citizenship Classes for Muslim Young People The Radical Middle Way Roadshow Engaging Young Somali Muslims Well, don't they just sound lovely? Okay, so the first stop on our Preventing Violent Extremism tour is Nottingham to the Karimia Institute, which has got £67,000 for 2008-2009, another £50,000 for 2009-2010, and another £50,000 for 2010-2011. Now, I'm no mathematician, but I reckon that's 160-odd grand. That sounds quite a lot, doesn't it? In charge of the Institute and the money is Musharraf Hussain. I think we have to uh, recognise that there are extremists amongst the Muslims. It's a very, very tiny uh, minority, but it is there. And to be in denial of that would be denying a reality and therefore doing a great disservice to both the Muslim community and, of course, the wider uh, community. And in light of this reality and fact, I think... Every effort has to be made to prevent such groups, such small minority individuals uh, from exercising any kind of uh, impact and influence on others. And so I really welcome efforts uh, which will prevent the development and further growth of such extremist groups and people. However, we need to be sensitive how we go about it. That also means taking the Muslim community in confidence, taking them along on this journey. Uh, And it is a a long-term process and a journey, to be honest. It's not a few years process. It's really gaining that confidence of the entire Muslim community that we all have to work together to uproot this um, very... Uh, pernicious and dangerous movement, no matter how small and tiny it is, it's still there, I think, and it's got to be got ridden of. 
if nothing else, for the sake of Islam itself, because Islam does not need such people. It does not really uh, need people who uh, are pernicious and who hate the other. That is not the way of Islam. This just sounds like bribery. The government is bribing Muslims to behave themselves, you know, in exchange for money for sports projects and educational projects and, you know, theatre workshops. You know, we're, they're saying, if we give you this money, do you promise to behave yourselves? Why do you need government money to do this? Why should the taxpayer fund this kind of activity? And why can't these changes in attitude and behaviour come organically without government intervention. It says something about the weakness of Muslims in Britain that they can't do this for themselves. The Muslim community is a new community here. It's in its infancy. It's developing its infrastructure here at all levels. You know, voluntary sector, our charities, Muslim schools, the mosques. And it needs a lot of help with its capacity building. And the taxpayers' money and of which Muslims are also taxpayers, if a tiny amount of it comes for capacity building so that Muslims can play a more positive role uh, in the society, it's really very legitimate, very proper, and it's direly needed, and it's the right place to spend government money. When the government puts in, say, 50,000 towards this youth development project, we will be perhaps match funding it in many other ways. Uh, you know, you would have literally, you, you might have, you know, um, we're hoping we might have perhaps 200 young youth leaders who will be doing, just imagine the amount of work they will be able to do, all kinds of work within voluntary s sector, you know, ranging from something like coaching young uh, boys to doing, playing cricket, to actually doing radio programs, to helping run Sunday tutorial classes, to helping elderly and helping uh, people plant trees, you know. Amazing sort of work, you know. And that 50,000 pounds really is, is, is worth every penny. So that's what's going down in Nottingham, planting trees and training radio presenters. And if you thought that was exciting, wait till you hear what's happening less than an hour away in Birmingham. Showing absolutely no flawed logic whatsoever, the government has decided that the more Muslims there are, the more problems you have. Mo Muslims, mo problems, as the notorious B.I.G. might have once said. And of course, mo is short for Mohammed, which is the name of the prophet. <laughs> anyway, because Britain's second city has a higher than national average Muslim population, Birmingham has more extremists than any other British city. Result! So it has £2.4 million to prevent violent extremism. Now, we're going to hear from Brummie councillor Salma Yacoub in a minute, but first, I hit the streets to find out if there really was a problem. Now, you're a young lad, you're 23, aren't you? Yeah. Um, you've lived in Birmingham all your yes, life, you know the city pretty well. Is there a problem with violent extremism in Birmingham? Uh, I'm, th there is, actually, yeah, because everything just seems to have got extreme. Everybody... When I was young, there was none of these people with beards, but now there's beards absolutely everywhere. Every Tom, Dick and Harry's is growing a beard. Why? Because I'm becoming religious. Why? Don't know, just religious. What do you understand by the phrase violent extremism? Is it like when you're like violent, like really, really bad? I don't know. What is it? I don't, I don't know. I've never heard I don't. 
Is it just like, you know, like how you're an extremist and you just do everything extra, and so like you're just violent to prove a point or something? This violent extremism thing, it sounds like, you know, pigeonhole, I don't know, because is it just violence? Is it racial violence? Is it like sort of religious violence? It's just extreme violence, but um, I don't know, just local gangs and stuff. But this extreme violence sounds like something completely different. I can't say I've actually heard the term before. Birmingham City Council has been given two and a half million pounds to prevent violent extremism. Do you think it's enough money? Do you think it's too much money? They shouldn't be given a penny as far as I'm concerned. They do not need a single penny to do anything with. Uh, all they'll end up doing it is giving it to the old fat men that have orange beards uh, and obviously they'll then obviously be putting it in their own pockets or giving it to their own families. As far as I'm concerned, government shouldn't be having anything to do with religion. The reason they're giving Birmingham two and a half million pounds is that because there are lots of Muslims here, they think the more Muslims you have, the more of a problem you have. What do you think of that equation? No, I don't agree with that at all. Just because there's a larger population of Muslims here, that doesn't mean that there is a larger problem here. I guess like if you went somewhere else where it's a predominantly white area and you got maybe like two Muslims there, it could be them too. So I don't see the point in it. So if you were in charge of two and a half million pounds and you could put it towards preventing violent extremism, what would you do with the cash? Definitely um, like more of a police presence. When they had the Conservative Party going on, there was like more of a police presence and it was just nice to have that kind of extra you could see the police out there and I mean on Broad Street they have like a good presence already but some places they don't and you just kind of it'd be nice to kind of feel safe all over the city as opposed to just on certain places. If you had the money, if they gave you the money, let's say, what would you do with it? Is money the way to solve this problem? Two million pounds money, education, they need to obviously stop fade schools first thing. They need to go into the mosque and obviously witness what the imams do. Uh, they're learning things blindly without knowing what they're reading. Give it to central council and get them to do youth projects, not i.e. not one complete race. Just give it to so every part everybody uh, participates. Because the way they're probably doing it now is giving it only to one colour, i.e. black, uh, Pakistani, Indian, white, and then nobody's integrating. So that's what they're saying. Lovely people, lovely city, but they didn't seem well informed. Let's ask someone who's bound to know more. I'm Salma Yakub and I'm a councillor in the Sparkbrook Ward. What is going on in Birmingham, Salma? That's what I'm trying to find out. I've been putting in questions since June asking what's happening with the Preventing Extremism Agenda money. Uh, last year we had half a million pounds as part of the Pathfinder project. So I want to know where did that money go, which projects were funded and what was the rationale for funding them? And I still haven't had answers to these very, very basic questions. And it's even more important now because £2.4 million has been earmarked for the next three years. So I think it's important that we have those answers. So you're an elected representative and you don't know where the money's going. That's quite serious, isn't it? I think so. And uh, I'm an elected representative of a ward which has got a very young population and quite a high percentage of Muslims. So you'd think someone like myself would be in a position to know where this money has gone. And talking to other councillors, I haven't come across a single councillor who has been consulted, even including the deputy leaders, um, Tariq Khan, the deputy leader of the Lib Dems, who are a partner in this uh, Tory Lib Dem run council. So that really raises some serious questions about transparency and accountability. 
Now, I was out and about in Birmingham city centre today asking people about violent extremism. They don't know what it is. You know, people thought it meant safer buses or better, you know, lampposts or things like that. But one guy said, oh, I was just going to go to fat men with orange beards. Well, this is the danger with all of this. If we're not open and transparent about it, it leads to greater mistrust and suspicion. And the feeling in the community is that... Um, is it just people who are already in the know who are getting this money? And perhaps there are some really good projects which are doing worthwhile work. But is it about preventing extremism or general community work? And if it's general community work, all communities need to be supported. Because there's another aspect to this, which other communities can rightfully start to feel resentful that extra money is going for development work within the Muslim community, which they're not having access to funds for. So we have to be very, very careful in a city like Birmingham, which is multicultural, which is diverse, but we make sure that we have a fair and transparent system for everybody. Poor Salma. Imagine being a democratically elected representative and being kept in the dark. I wanted to shine a light on this situation, so I went to the corridors of power, the House of Commons, where I tracked down the small but perfectly formed communities minister, Sadiq Khan. We can't escape the fact, but it's a statistic, for example, that 70% of all trials taking place in the UK today, terrorist trials, have a Pakistani connection. So we can't escape that fact. Nobody nobody at all is suggesting uh, that all Pakistanis are terrorists, they all, all, they all have extremist views, but we can't escape the fact that there is a particular challenge that we face. Uh, if you speak to British people of Pakistan heritage, they're keen to do their bit. They're keen to do, make sure that they do what they need to do to try and deal with this issue. It's quite clear speaking to American citizens of Pakistan heritage that they too can see common problems, common challenges and common opportunities for both countries to work together. Well, he didn't really tell me anything. So hungry for information, I found a Muslim mover and shaker from the other side of the pond who was in London to tell us how to sort this problem out. My name is Farhana Kara. I'm the executive director of an organization called Muslim Advocates, which is a national legal advocacy and educational organization created by a group of Muslim American lawyers in the United States. Uh, now, you're here as part of the U.S. delegation to Britain. You're of Pakistani heritage. What kind of challenges and issues are Americans of Pakistani heritage facing? I, th I think there are a number of challenges, and, and this is all, you know, what we're here to talk about is really the environment post-September 11th and the way in which it's changed. And I think for, for many Pakistani Americans, and, you know, including my own personal experience, you know, our parents came to the United States uh, primarily seeking education, seeking opportunity, and growing up, those were the, the values and, and the kind of the goals that were set by my parents were getting an education, establishing myself and my career. Um, and then unfortunately the, the tragic events of, of September 11th occurred and it challenged many of us to, in addition to getting an education and, and making sure we were uh, providing for ourselves to also be sure that we were engaging in the political process, in civic society, um, and doing our part to protect the founding values of the United States, freedom, uh, equality, and justice for all. Now, from what you know of British Muslims of Pakistani heritage, um, how do you, I mean, what differences and similarities are there between sort of the two sets of people? Yeah, 
I think there are, at some level, there are some similarities. And as you said, there are differences. I think the similarity is obviously so many, I think, of our parents came to our respective countries seeking opportunities and economic opportunities and that kind of thing. I think one difference is, is that the immigration patterns to the United States are a little more recent compared to the, the communities that came to the UK. And um, they tend to be more highly educated. And as a result, I think on average, the average Pakistani family in the United States actually earns um, above the the average income for uh, the average American family, and I think that's that's very different from uh, the, the Pakistani and British experience. Um, so that's I, I think just as a demographic matter, I think that's a there's a difference in as I understand education and, and economic status. In terms of um, homegrown radicalization and homegrown extremism, it's a real issue for British Pakistani communities. Um, in my interview just now with Sadiq Khan, he said that 70% of people who are on trial for terrorism offences are of Pakistani heritage. Now, is this a statistic that you guys are having to deal with in the US, or are you really developing preventative measures? Um, as I understand, I think the, the U.S. government is really primarily focused on the pre prevention side, that I think uh, we've been very fortunate that there has not been um, this similar kind of homegrown uh, threat in the United States. And, and I would argue that I think that's in part because of maybe some differences between American society and UK society. I think the premise of American society is number one, this was a country that was founded based on people fleeing religious persecution and wanting religious freedom, um, fleeing the British government in <laughs> part, um, and our colleagues on this side of the pond. Uh, but it's also society then as a result of the last couple of hundred years is based on the premise that if you work hard, play by the rules, you're entitled to the same same education, same job as, as anyone else. And I think that sets up a situation where people feel like if they're not getting a fair shot, they, there's an avenue for them to try to pursue um, grievances that they have. And my understanding is that in the British situation that that's that's not necessarily true, and that they may not have the avenues to to be sure that they are um, that there is an even pl even playing field. It seems everyone is getting in on the violent extremism act. In addition to the 86 million pounds that we have sloshing around out there somewhere, there's a young Muslims advisory group, there's a Muslim women's advisory group, and of course there's this transatlantic exchange program with America to root out radicalism. But there's no room for people asking hard questions. What effect does foreign policy have on pushing people towards violent extremism and what on earth does that have to do with football tournaments and photography courses? On a bit of a shaky ISDN line, I talked to Gary Hindle, Head of Security and Counterterrorism at the Royal United Services Institute. Well, if you look at how we started off after the 7th of July 2005, where we had key groups of Muslim leaders um, into Downing Street, and then from that came engagement with organizations like uh, the MCB. Um, and an evolution of that has been to recognize that, in fact, a lot of the national-level organizations like the MCB don't actually reflect that closely the views and ideas of local organizations in, in communities that are, can actually potentially deliver um, the sorts of engagement and deliver the kind of uh, ideas that the government wants to put, to put out there. So this next step in directly going down to the local level to engage with community organizations is really, I guess you could see it as an, as an evolution of a, of a strategy of finding ways to really reach uh, into those communities. Is there a danger of conflating community cohesion and capacity building with counter-terrorism? There are some dangers, but to a degree it's also a legitimate um, 
combination. If you look at part of the, the prevent strategy, it's finding ways to um, disrupt people who try to provoke, promote violent extremism. And part of that is providing alternative uh, venues and voices for vulnerable individuals who may be the targets of those propagandizers. So in that sense, if Pathfinder money, PVE money, is funding projects that help educate or divert um, young people into more productive uh, ventures, um, then there is, a, there is an argument to suggest that is a legitimate way to spend PVE money. Um, obviously, in a lot of cases, that can be, can be seen as quite undesirable, potentially, by those receiving the money. But it's a, very le it's a legitimate issue, and it really is up to central government to decide how far they want to go into the realms of, um, uh, of, of general social work and social cohesion work um, under a PVE banner. I don't mean to carp. I know there's a problem with violent extremism, and you know there's a problem with violent extremism, but I'm just not convinced. Looking at the projects and the people running them, sorry guys, the money, or rather government money, isn't really the way to solve it. It smacks of bribery and buck-passing on the part of the government and laziness on the part of Muslim communities who wouldn't otherwise bother to address pressing social and economic issues. Muslims are being spoon-fed empowerment on opportunity, and it's all because of terrorist attacks. It's almost as if we've been in denial over poverty of education, employment and aspiration. And, by taking the money, Muslims are saying, we can't do this on our own. Here's Salma Yacoub telling it like it is. I do actually have an issue with the underlying ethos behind this so-called preventing extremism agenda. Uh, myself, I think it's a political device to really absolve the government from its responsibility in the rise in extremism. The elephant in the room here is the foreign policy issue. And in fact, I think it's also part of silencing Muslim community voices because they're funding projects which, of course, are not going to be critical of the government, which means those people who are critical get further and further marginalised. And I think that's another dangerous implication of this, which means rather than tackling violent extremism, you're actually creating the very climate where those genuine extremists will say, well, we're the only ones who are critical, we're the only ones who, who share the pain of what is happening, we're the only ones speaking out. So by silencing and really imposing a self-censorship almost on the Muslim community, it is actually, I think, going to help uh, increase violent extremism, not prevent it. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was produced by Ben Green. Yes, he's Jewish, so oy vey and mazel tov. And it was written and presented by me, Riaz Atbat. I'm off on holiday now, where I'm going to be delicious in Mauritius. So until next time, jazakallah for listening and wa alaikum as-salam.